This is unstructured. Today we're with Qasem Aslam, somebody whose name rem- rhymes with awesome, he likes to tell us. And I guess it's not surprising because he's a digital marketer that he would come up with a sloganeering statement. How are you doing today, Qasem? I'm living the dream, Eric. How are you? <laughs> All right. Living the dream. I love that. Now, I followed up and was looking at doing some podcasts, and you have quite a story arc. From my understanding, you started out as a software engineer? Well, I was selling software. Yeah, my I'm, my oh. engineering days were uh, overstated, but um, I sold software to banks and healthcare institutions. And so we would sell custom implementations, and then I would project manage the, the build. And uh, that was the beginning of my... Oh, okay. Was it like a um, SA uh, SaaS or whatever software as a service type of thing? A lot of it. It was it was kind of pre SaaS craze. Some of it played in the SaaS ecosystem, but you know, banks like to to hold things and to tell sure. themselves because you know, I mean, security and compliance requirements and all those good things. And so, yeah, a lot. It, most of it was self contained um, architecture. Okay, so you would have a team, and then you would develop a system for the institution and sell That's that. Correct. And a lot of it, honestly, was just sewing together pre-existing solutions. And so, like, one of the things that we did, we had a, a mortgage bank that uh, had a multifunction printer solution, and their printer didn't talk to um, the underwriter's machine. And so they couldn't – it sounds like such a simple problem, but when it's a you know multi-billion-dollar bank, the mm-hmm. fact that they can't print these these documents – you know, you've seen mortgage docs. I mean, if you've bought a oh, house. Oh, God. Yeah, it's – 120 under- pages. So they couldn't, they couldn't print them ad hoc. They had to send them through this proxy and then the proxy would print them, but the proxy would cut them off. And, and so we went in there and all we did was just bridge the underwriter software to the printer so that it could read the margins. And that was a, I don't know, nine month build, believe it or not. Um, Cause you're, you're taking, yeah, two apps that just don't talk to each other. And, and that's the type of thing that we would do because banks have a lot of legacy software that they can't get rid of, refuse to get rid of. They have things they need to integrate with because they have strategic partners. And so we go in there and, and figure out how to make things talk to each other. Now was a lot of it too. They couldn't get rid of it because um, the software has to be cleared by FDIC and all the federal regulations. And you can't just say, Oh, Hey, I'm going to go with uh, this bolt on here. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You got to well, get that cleared. Compl- you're absolutely right. The compliance requirements are none of them are black and white, like especially because, you know, technology is hard to put into a box. And so you would mm-hmm. read some of these, these requirements they would have to fulfill. And some of them, especially because it's coming from the FDIC, but some of them are, you know, like PCI compliance is a really good example. It's impossible. If you really want to, dig into like the, the philosophical requirements behind the security that they need to be able to provide. You can't, you know, as an example, they'll say something to the effective, and this is from memory, but um, no data can be shared over an open loop or there's something to that effect. Well, the internet is an open loop. So the minute you right. have any information on the World Wide web, you are officially non-compliant with, you know, what the, the, the requirements that banks have to comply with. So everybody's like kind of walking this horrible tightrope. And once they have an application that's in there, that's been approved that other banks use, they just won't replace it. Even if you find something that's better and more secure, they'll refuse right. to replace it based solely off of precedent. They're like, look, this is working the way it is. And we don't want to rock the boat. And you can't completely blame them for that. Oh gosh, no, it's not their fault at all. It's, it's regulation. And yeah, I mean, I mean, because if you, if they do something new, and then it fails or it goes wrong, it could tear the whole thing apart. It absolutely could. And and bankers, the thing that they hate more than anything are regulators. The minute you give a regulator the opportunity, and all the regulator needs, it's like a shark who smells blood. They just need the opportunity to open up this wound over here, but then that gives them carte blanche to go look at every single other facet of the bank. So yeah, it's it's 
it's a closed system for sure. Well, that's tough too, because um, uh, regulators to me are like auditors and their job is to find something wrong, no matter what. And they always will. Well, they always will. So yeah. it's almost like you need to leave a few things out there for them as low hanging fruit <laughs> and hopefully they go away. <laughs> that's awesome. That's really funny. It's I've done it. <laughs> yeah. Sad, but true. Now, while we're into, um, I guess, auditing and criminality and everything else, I understand you had an eventful day at a particular bank. You want to talk about that? I did. Yeah, I was at, it was the largest privately held bank in the nation. And I try not to use their name, um, but you can find them on Google. Uh, they were also the largest private or the largest bank failure in U.S. history, I think. Don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty confident about it. Um, and if you've seen the movie, The Big Short, uh, I haven't, but well, it's worth watching. It's, it's a Bradley Pitts film and I love Bradley. Um, not that he's in much of it, but the big short is about the bank that took down Lehman brothers. And it explains, um, in really minute detail, like they get very simple without getting simplistic exactly how that happened. And and some of the, the, you know, strategic miscalculations that we made. Um, but the bank that brought down Lehman brothers was that was, was my bank. They were a client of mine. Um, and I was at the office, uh, on bank failure Friday and the FDIC pulls in with their, their big black SUVs. Bank, bank failure Friday. That's what they <laughs> like you roll I, didn't know, I didn't know that until that Friday, but yeah, <laughs> apparently they only close banks on the Friday on Fridays. I don't know why. Um, and they call it bank failure Friday. And so I'm, I'm there on bank failure Friday when the FDIC pulls up and they start like kicking in doors and, and doing things that are just completely unnecessary. Um, and they seized the bank and they, they corralled all of the employees. I was a vendor, so I just got released, but they corralled all the employees in the, in the bank's deli at the bottom floor. And um, if you had a bank issued laptop, they like took it from you and hard drives couldn't leave and USB drives and all that. Like it was, it was pretty intense. It was a pretty intense day. And that was the beginning of my, uh, that was the beginning of the global financial collapse. And it was also the beginning of my personal financial collapse because the bank was my largest, my largest client. Oh, wow. So you lost the gig and, were you overextended? I mean, what, what, what exactly happened there? It wasn't, it wasn't that job in particular that really did it. It was just the catalyst to every subsequent job because that bank failure caused multiple banks to freeze all spending. Mm. Um, and I was also in some healthcare institutions that also kind of like just immediately tightened their belts. And yeah, I had, I had projects that were on the line with big software builds. You don't get anything up front. I think you get 5%. Um, as a deposit and the rest of you go get an SBA loan to float. And so if you have a bank that's freezes a project, even if you have that receivable somewhere on the horizon, you now have a loan that you need to service employees that you need to pay. And you know, your 18 month development just became 36 months and there's no way to bridge that gap. Um, and so I, as a young entrepreneur in, in one day when everything finally came to a head, I had to lay off everybody that I uh, had employed, which was, which was painful. Um, sure. And then almost all at the same time I had to, uh, I lost my house to foreclosure, my car to repossession. Um, I was a hundred and some odd thousand dollars in, in personally guaranteed debt. Um, it was rough. And that was like the beginning of my entrepreneurial rebirth was, you know, I couldn't sell software anymore cause I couldn't get the loans I needed to, to run the software. Um, right. So I started trolling Craigslist. I started trolling Craigslist for just random, like, Hey, I know, you know, I computer good and I can fix whatever problems you've got. And I'm doing that to like feed myself because I have nowhere to go, nothing to do. I have no college degree, so I'm not employable. 
Um, you had a Costco card, I think you said. Yeah. Um, so this is this is how <laughs> this is how sad and pathetic my story gets. Is I've got this expired. It's expired, and I'm not like I can't even go to Costco and legitimately purchase anything. But I've got this expired Costco card, and I'd go to Costco on the weekends because they had like really good spreads of free tryouts. And I got I got so acclimated to it that I would time the shift changes of the free tryout ladies. Uh, you know, <laughs> ladies, their 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 uh, lunch lady caps. Sure. Because then I could go and I could make a second round for some of them, for the ones that I really liked. And that's how I was feeding myself is I'm like running around and I'm, I'm living in this apartment that I have no money. Again, it was $150 to get in the apartment. And they gave us three months free if you if you sign an 18-month lease. Mm, because like, the real estate was down at the time and they were oh, yeah. dying I mean, to get people. The whole world tanked and then you know nobody's hiring anyway. Not that I could have got a job if they were. Um, and so that's where I that's how I started where I am now. I started helping people with their websites and that kind of segued into building websites. And then that segued into the question, like, well, how do I, like, what do I do now, now that I have this? And my initial answer was, I have no idea. Good luck to you. But then after a while, you know, I heard that so many times that it, it, I started to see the opportunity there. And, and my, my first step into marketing and the thing that I really fell in love with and the thing that I, you know, I really kind of pride myself on to this day at being really good at is search engine optimization. Organic hmm. optimization was where I, you know, I, I kind of made the leap from just being a web dev to, all right, let's get this thing found and visible. Um, it's not a very scalable service. It's not one that I offer much any longer. I sort of trade pick my clients there, but, um, it, it's, it was my gateway drug into marketing. Can you break that down? Yeah. You mean just the narrative from, from web well, to SEO? Yeah. SEO just help people like, understand so what it is. SEO is, is an interesting service because, you know, so many people say things like we only offer white hat SEO and search engine optimization incidentally is just helping you get found by, by, um, people who are searching organic, organically within search engines. I, I optimize to Google. I think that you should. They say Google has 66% market share. That's per capita. Google has 99% market share per search, which mm. means that the people that are actually searching are using Google. If somebody goes to the Google machine and they search for something that you think you should show up for, the process of getting you to show up is called search engine optimization or as an acronym SEO. Here's what's inter interesting about SEO. It is a violation of Google's terms of service uh, to try to manipulate rankings in any way which means that there's no such thing as white hat optimization or black hat optimization. All proactive search engine optimization is a violation of Google's terms of service. So the minute, the microsecond you hire somebody like me, you are technically in violation of Google's terms of service. Now that doesn't mean you don't do it. It just means that we get really clear on what people say is, you know, uh, a compliant and best practice because the, the real key to proper SEO is not trying to game the system at all. Google is a, is a billion, if not trillion dollar machine that is built around one concept. And that concept is, is getting people to the, the end result the fastest. Mm -hmm. How can I find you the answer? And so really the key to, to good SEO is just be the answer. Now that's so much easier said than done, right? Because there's a lot of nuances to it. And, sure. Um, kind of interesting, whatever, um, rules that you have to follow. But, um, when I'm helping somebody with SEO, it's really a matter of making sure that their site is visible. So there's technical optimization, which is a one-time thing, by the way. Anybody who's billing you on a recurring basis for ongoing optimization is lying to you. Or they're just taking their one-time work and they're, they're slow rolling it over a series of months. Um, but once you're technically optimized, now you need to create compelling content. And you want your content to be what we call 10x content, meaning 10 times better than anything else that exists um, that's analogous to what you're doing. Uh, and I steal the, the concept of 10x content from Rand Fishkin. And then you want to build inbound links and you need quality inbound links from relevant sites. And so if you're selling, you know, dog toys, you're not going to get an inbound link from Home Depot. That's not going to help you. That's going to hurt you. Um, if you're local, you want local links. If you're national, you want national links. Um, it's all kind of just sort of logical. It just makes sense. Is, 
is that what um, guest posting is used for sometimes? Yeah, guest posting has become a double-edged sword too because everybody that's real heavy into guest posting, what we've noticed, and this is anecdotal, I can't prove it, but we've noticed that there's been um, some pullback on Google's end as far as how much uh, the preferential treatment they're giving to networks that are built purely for guest posting. There are some like, you know, Forbes and Entrepreneur, of course, get a pass. HuffPost gets a pass because... You know, there's probably just people making decisions there and ivory towers rubbing elbows. But um, I'd be really careful with only going after guest posting where we've had a lot of luck. And I almost hesitate to say this because the minute you say anything like this, then, you know, you ruin the ecosystem. But um, buying editorial links, which, again, is technically a violation of Google's terms of service. Link buying is a violation. Right. But the way they get around that is you can go to sites like Audience Bloom or Fat Joe and Audience Bloom will charge you a certain amount of money to manage the process. Now, the link is free. But, you know, interfacing with their their writers and, and, you know, finding the network and then going back and forth with the editorial staff and getting it posted, that'll cost you three grand. But for three grand, you can get a link on entrepreneur.com. And that link is really powerful link juice. And link building is a, is a quality over quantity game. One link will, one really quality link will do way more for you than, you know, 50 BS links that you get some outsourced link building firm to build. Hmm. Is it me or has Forbes turned into pretty much a advertorial site? I'm actually a Forbes contributor, so I'm not allowed to say. <laughs> but I will. I will uh, just to you know play ball here and wink at you a little bit. I will say that I don't disagree. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, there we go. Yeah. Okay. Now you were a. Digital marketer. Help me out. What is that? Man, nobody knows. That's why we get to charge so much. What's unfair about digital marketing, and this is why so many people end up in the trap of, you know, the we do everything game. It's like saying I'm a doctor, far less self-important. But, you know, there's so many, you know, you can be an ear, nose, and throat doctor. You can be a cardiologist. You can be a pediatrician. Dentists are doctors, technically, right? Like you're, you're mm-hmm. if you went to college, your college professor had a doctorate and was technically a doctor. Like there's this huge umbrella of people that fit underneath doctor. And then within the, the, that, there's like all these little segments and digital marketing, because it's still kind of in its infancy, hasn't really segmented very well yet. It's going to, but digital marketers aren't good at, at, at defining their niche. Um, and I'm not trying to say that we're analogous to doctors in any way, by the way. It's just the first. Uh, no, I'm holding you to it. Yeah, that came up. Uh, we're just as important as doctors. Um yeah, exactly. so digital marketing, you know, in a lot of ways, it's it's I I think it's relationship building online. If I had to summarize it, um, that's what I say in my book. That's my definition: is digital marketing is online relationship building. It's everything you know about relationship building um, in person, just on a, a digital scale. And what a digital marketer should be doing is helping you build relationships with people online, using their chosen tool. And that's where I get to you know my next point, which is I think digital marketers need to niche down. If you're ever dealing with a marketer who says, oh yeah, we do everything. We're, you know, we're full stack digital marketers. Now is the new term. I call bullshit. I don't care how big your agency is. I don't care how long you've been doing it. I've been doing this for 13 years. Nobody can be the best at everything because it's so nuanced and there's so many facets to it. And there's so many applications. Look at, I mean, just, just the marketing mechanisms that you have to be good at between Facebook and Twitter and Pinterest and LinkedIn and Google. And I mean, like it's impossible to learn all of those from, from top to bottom, left to right, and say that you're the best at all of them. And so I think that you need to deal with niche-specific marketers. And, and regardless of the niche that they're choosing, that marketer should be helping you build relationships. And so if you hire somebody to help you with your LinkedIn outreach, for instance, which is a new one, not new by any means, but it's just being flooded right now. LinkedIn is the new spam inbox. 
um, that person should be helping you build build relationships online. And that's what I think digital marketing is. How did I do that, Eric? Was that a good answer? I don't know. I'm not an expert. You are. So you could pretty much <laughs> well, be I shining me on. <laughs> <laughs> now, how is that different than sales though? Isn't sales relationship all. building? Not at all. It's the exact same thing. It's just, it's, you know, sales is analog. Digital marketing is digital. Oh, okay. Now you brought up a LinkedIn. I've been under the impression that LinkedIn is actually up and coming. Well, and so this is what's hard for me to say is I don't know if I'm ahead of the curve or if I was too far ahead that I missed the boat. Um, LinkedIn used to be an, an extremely powerful lead generation resource for us. Um, I could go to LinkedIn and if I spent a dedicated day on LinkedIn, I could yield one or two closed clients without question, hmm. um, which is, it's pretty cool to say, you know, Hey, if I spend a day on this thing, prospecting and reaching out, I know I'm going to close at least two people. That's not true any longer. If you open up your LinkedIn now, um, you just get a bunch of people that are using those same prospecting methodologies, but they're trying hmm. to do it in an automated way. And they're slowly burning people's attention on LinkedIn. And LinkedIn is trying to proactively fix that. I, I know that for a fact. I have a little bit of insight into um, the team that handles parts of that. And um, yeah, the LinkedIn inbox is, is sort of turning into uh, just just the wild, wild west of uh, it's what email was 15 years ago. It's just people just launching things at you. So I think they need to fix that if they want to maintain longevity. Okay. So my approach of always personally typing whatever I'm going to say is of use. I would say absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And then you'll get noticed before other people get noticed because they have all these LinkedIn bots that go through and, you know, they use merge fields and they reach out and they'll drip content on you and say, Hey, Eric, you know, I noticed that you're in this space. Here's some content. I thought you'd be interesting. I'll be back in touch in a few weeks with some additional whatever. And that's really cool if a human's doing it, but when it's mm -hmm. a bot using automated messaging, you can just tell. And now you've, you've burned me forever. Now I just never want to talk to you because it's rude. That's not relationship building any longer. Yeah. I find that quite a lot and I run a podcast. Yeah. So why are you asking me questions about, um, real estate or, or other items? It's like, I, I, so I think I can tell it right away because people aren't targeting me directly. Now, if they say, Hey, I checked out your show or do you cover these topics and bang, I know you're paying attention, but I can. I think that I have a lot of the bots that do hit you and me both, sir. It's, it's been interesting to watch and it's just been the last six to nine months that I think LinkedIn has really taken a dive. There's this company out there. I hired them for a short period. They didn't work out for me, but they're called linked selling and they started selling tutorials and, um, uh, learning management solution, online courses on how to sell on LinkedIn. And the minute they did that, everything just went to hell in a handbasket. I think their principles are good. But I think people used their principles and just kind of templatized everything. And now it's, um, you know, it's kind huh. of killed the golden goose that LinkedIn was. Okay. So while we're beating up services. Yeah. How about Instagram? Instagram's interesting. Instagram's ad mechanism is run outside of Facebook's ad manager, which I think is so stupid. Facebook, by the way, is run by a petulant child thief. Like the fact that we celebrate this guy as an entrepreneur just surprises me and, and makes me vomit a little bit. But um <laughs> The, the interesting thing about Instagram is if you look at look at the differences between Facebook and Instagram. Facebook is where people go to get informed, argue about politics, stock ex boyfriends. Instagram mm -hmm. is where people go to like dream and escape. You know, like Facebook right. is left brain, Instagram is right brain. I'm doing that on your screen, Rob. But the fact that Facebook lets you just push your ads into Instagram shows that they don't understand their own advertising mechanism. Either that or they don't care. 
you can't advertise to people on Instagram the way you advertise to people on Facebook. A, B, you're far less likely to get people off of Instagram. If you're on Facebook, I know I can, or not, I know, but it's more likely that I can get you to click through to something else. I can get you over my video, bring you to my landing page, get you on my site, and then I can pixel and remarket to you in perpetuity. Instagram users don't like leaving Instagram. They're actually there for Instagram. Mm -hmm. And so Instagram is way better for brand building, awareness building, you know, establishing yourself as a thought leader, but it's not a phenomenal utility for direct response. All of that said, if you're going after women between say 20 and 40 that are moderately affluent, Instagram is the place to be because you can you can really start to kind of plant a flag on the ground and let people know as a brand that you exist and and sort of build your awareness from there. How do you build on Instagram and build your audience? Because from my experience and it drives me up a tree everybody just follows you yep. gets you to follow them back and then unfollows you so the interesting thing like i said you're not going to get them off of instagram in the beginning what i do is a start with video content because it's the most highly engaged type of content on both facebook and instagram and you want to try to teach people something if you can teach them something that they're going to use they're more likely to follow you the next time that's why you notice you ever seen all those recipe videos that are running around instagram hmm. and facebook they're everywhere and it's, it's, it's shocking how well they work, but that small amount of value, um, it, it sort of cements that brand in somebody else's mind is, oh yeah, those are the guys that taught me how to, you know, peel a watermelon the right way or whatever. Um, but try to teach some, somebody something. And then on Instagram, the way to really, I think, capitalize on that success is uh, begin to lengthen the tenure of your teaching. And so in the very beginning, you've got like a 10 second video and and because you're doing podcasts, you're like, Hey, I'm going to show you the proper way to mount a microphone. So you don't get a lot of that pop feedback. And then after Mm -hmm. that, you pixel everybody that watches that video um, through fruition. And then those people get remarketed with a subsequent video. That's a little bit longer. And by your third or fourth video, I might start remarketing your actual course. So now I'm pushing them over to your, like your Simplero course or wherever you're hosting your content. And and now I can get them off of Instagram because they know, like, and trust you. They've engaged with their media before and they're more willing to make a departure. But, you know, again, contextualizing that it's going to take three or four touch points, which probably means, you know, 50,000 impressions before we're able to get them off of Instagram. Where with Facebook, the first couple of ads I hit you with, I can more than likely get you off of the network. Now, I've read a lot that Facebook is starting to kind of, people are leaving it. Yeah, the guy, the, the, actually a gentleman, my business partner now, but uh, he works with me, John Moran, he's our lead strategist, almost a year ago, and we've got the blogs to prove it, but he earmarked the death of Facebook. We started to see just insane declines um, in conversions. And I ended up on stage with the head of Facebook's partner program at State of Search in Dallas. And um, we had identified a trend that that proved definitively that Facebook was over-reporting their conversions because we were reconciling conversions between Google ads and analytics for a client. And then we opened up Facebook. And all of a sudden, when we opened up Facebook, the, the conversion reconciliation that we can do between ads and analytics didn't work between Facebook and analytics. And so we pulled down Wicked Reports um, and one other application and everything reconciled perfectly except for Facebook ads. And so I end up cornering this guy in the green room backstage, you know, and and I wasn't even trying to be incendiary. It's just, hey, just so you know, we've, you know, I can show you, but we found that Facebook's overreporting its data. And he looks at me and he's like, oh no, I know. And then just walks away. And that was it. Hmm. Um yeah, and that's, you know, they they veil it a little bit. They've got this whole like first click attribution, last click attribution sort of um, like they have 30 day view through attribution, which means that if somebody clicks on your ad and then any day time within 30 days purchases, they're attributing that as a conversion. And I don't know if this is still true, but the last I checked, you can't even turn that off. 
Um, so like no matter what, Facebook's going to take take credit for all the advertising you're doing. And good marketers are cross-permeating all the time. Um, mm. On top of the fact that they're just blatantly over-reporting data and under-reporting some of their bounces, Facebook will also strip other uh, data and analytics tools. Like if you open up uh, a website inside of Facebook's mobile browser, you'll notice that like Google Analytics isn't loading or Wicked Reports isn't loading or whatever analytics tool you're using. Facebook says it's to optimize for speed, but mm -hmm. I happen to think it's because they don't want to be policed and they don't want to have to prove their data. Um, mm -hmm. And then after the congressional hearing, the other thing that we saw is, is all of a sudden, all the data that we were able to segment by just went away. So, you know, you had a massive drop in conversions because, and, and this is, I think, I think this is still publicly available, but Facebook showed a loss in usage and that was late 2017. Um, and yeah, so there's... they took a big dive there adult usage in the US specifically. And then the congressional hearing just tanked everything because they pulled back on a lot of what they had made available from a segmentation standpoint, which is where Facebook's power is. It's an interest-based segmentation. So the fact that you can't do that and people aren't using it as much any longer, I think, I, I mean, I'm not saying they can't bring it back, but um, I don't push clients to Facebook at all. I don't, it's not the bread and butter that it used to be. Okay. So where do you push everybody? Google ads. No question. I think that I have a, an analogy for you and I've used it elsewhere, but I'm going to use it again. I think that um, if you look at God as an archetype uh, and I'm not telling you that God doesn't or doesn't exist, but God used to be the entity to whom we posed all of our questions, right? Like mm -hmm. you go back 20,000 years and, and you're a shepherd in a field and you want to know why it's not raining or why your kid is sick or why the girl you love doesn't love you. You asked God because you had no one else to ask. Well, God, at least in that context, has been replaced by Google. And I use that analogy not to be blasphemous, but to try to stress how important Google is to us as a society and as a species. Every single question you have, you go straight to the Google machine. From what mechanical pencil to buy, to when you're getting your airline tickets, to what type of school you should put your kid in, um, how should I propose to my wife? Like everybody goes to Google for everything. It is the first and most important indication of intent. And if you think about what intent is, intent is um, it's the decision to do something, right? Like if I've articulated intent, I am now going to make a decision and marketers monetize off of decisions. And so if you and I together can begin to build kind of that semantic pyramid where we understand what words indicate the intent to do what things and how that relates back to your business, I now can give you advertising that starts at intent. Now, I'm not telling you Google is the only thing you need to do. What I'm telling you is you need to start with Google because Google will tell you where you're positioned in your organic ecosystem, what your competitors are currently paying for your competition, what your competition is currently paying for your service, what uh, words resonate with your um, your prospects. Um, it's, it's the, the very, it's the vanguard of all things that are marketing. And so using search engine optimization, which we just discussed, I can tell you that the two key phrases for, um, real estate investors that are the most powerful, uh, were sell my house fast and sell my home fast. Um, what's interesting about that is, is two years after bidding on those key phrases we found, cause I have the highest performing real estate investment campaign on the planet and I can prove it with data. We found that the term sell my home fast ended up yielding far less closed deals than the term sell my house fast, even though they were roughly the same cost, yielded roughly the same leads, and the leads were anecdotally about the same quality. It makes total sense. Because people that use the word home have a stronger psychological attachment to the property. A house is commoditized. They're already distancing themselves from it. It's just yeah, and you're so property. much smarter than most people, Eric, because most people don't even get there that fast. We didn't get there at all. It took me two years worth of closed property data to understand that. Now, imagine if I had started doing SEO in the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Uh 
because it's such a high commercial intent key phrase and because of how competitive it is, it would have taken me about 18 months to properly optimize that phrase before I'm on the top half of the first page. And Google uh, is obsessive with semantic delineations like that, even though that, you know, everybody thinks that Hummingbird like glazed over semantic search. Hummingbird didn't glaze over semantic search. Hummingbird made semantic search so much more important. What is Hummingbird? Sorry. Okay. Hummingbird is a Google algo update where Google introduced machine learning. Algorithm update? Yes, sir. Google algorithm update. <laughs> okay. So bringing all this full circle, if you're running Google ads, you now get to at least faster than you would with search engine optimization. I get to see that sell my house is worth more than sell my home. Um, but take that and apply that to every other facet of digital marketing. I get to see which which value proposition resonates with my users more. I get to see what price works better. I get to see which geographies perform better. I get to see which competitors are out there are dumping dumb money and which ones aren't. Um, Google is, it's the front lines, to use a military analogy. And you want to be there first. I'm not telling you to stay there. But you want to be there first so you can learn everything you need to learn about the, the landscape. And then you can slowly back up in your sales funnel and start using slightly, let's call them more sophisticated, but at least longer term um, marketing avenues to, to market your business. But Google is where I think all businesses should start, regardless of whether or not they're advertising with me. I'm not out here to push Google. The day something better shows up, I'll be the first one there. Now, when you're speaking of this, you're speaking in the perspective, like I know you specialize in real estate or you do a lot of real estate, be it a real estate agent, a plumber, a veterinarian, a dentist, mm -hmm. that all makes a lot of sense. Like, okay, where can I get my tooth fixed? Or um, my cat coughs or, or whatever you might be going for. What about something intangible? And you know where this is going because it's all about me. What about a podcast? Uh, what about something you want people to actually a find because there's 550,000 of them B not only find it, but actually listen because there's that, that actual conversion because it's like, great. You can talk about it all day, but I need you to click and listen. So as a marketer, solve that problem. I Well, I think I can. Some of my answers you're not going to like. I'll tell you just to start off with, let's say that you and I were sitting down and we were doing a consult. I would tell you that you're in a saturated ecosystem where people are willing to spend more per prospect than the prospect is worth to them. And mm -hmm. I believe that to be a, a pretty ubiquitous fact. In the race for attention, what you have found is, is uh, people running podcasts are, they're hemorrhaging money and they're doing it far past what would be a feasible cost per acquisition. And the way I would calculate that is this, uh, your cost per acquisition on a new prospect is the amount of money it costs you to earn a new listener. And then mm -hmm. um, the lifetime value of that listener is whatever you're going to make on that listener over the life. You want to at least be one-to-one, -one, right? So you're not losing money. The disadvantage you're at in the podcast world is you have competitors that either are going out of vanity play, aren't exceptionally sophisticated, or have a have a different end game that are willing to spend much more than that prospect is worth solely in the world of podcasts. So that places you at a disadvantage. And I want to pause there in case you have any pushback to issue before I keep going. No, that's fine. I, I think that some podcasters are going for the network effect or they're trying to hopefully buy to magnify it and then catch it up on the other end. I think you're absolutely right. And Sirius XM did this. You remember when Sirius launched, like they gave Howard Stern $400 million or something absurd. This is before mm. they were worth 400 million bucks. And they wrote a check that they couldn't cash, hoping that someday they would be able to catch up to it. And they did. Good for them. Um, so there's anytime you're in a saturated market, I tell general dentists this. If you're in general dentistry, I can't help you. Because if you open up Groupon tomorrow or today, right now, you can find somebody offering a free uh, cleaning, whitening, examination, x-rays, um, and sometimes a follow-up visit for $39. Mm -hmm. 
you can't compete with that any longer. It's a saturated industry with way too many, too many people went to dental school. And then now they open up a dentist uh, you know, office on every corner and perfect teeth come out and perfectly commoditized, all of those things. And so if you're a dentist, what I will tell to you, what I will say to you, and it's the same thing I'm going to say to you in just a moment, Eric, is find a specialty. Like if you can go into pediatrics or look at Invisalign or all on four or in, dental implants, I've worked with some dentists, as you can tell. Cool. For the podcast host, what I would do is I would find your, your dynamic ascension model. You need to find uh, where your monetization exists so your monetization model, let's say that you're selling consulting on the back end of your podcasts, there's your ascension. If you're not selling consulting, then you're selling courses. If you're not selling courses, you know, I mean, an absolute minimum, I'm sure you're selling advertising, but figure out where your ascension is. And then what we want to do is we want to find out where that niche audience exists. And so let's say that, you know, you brought up plumbers a second ago. And so I'm just grasping for straws. I'll, I'll grab that one. <laughs> let's say that you're uh, selling consulting for plumbers, like how to be a more efficient plumber. You're kind of like a home advisor type person. Um, what I would start to do then is I would look at, because again, for Google ads, we want to find where um, they've articulated intent as it relates to your service. And so, you know, it might be things like uh, um, um, plumbers looking for like CPA services as an example. So, or, or you have plumbers looking for advertising or plumbers looking for just about anything like advertising for plumbers, accountant for plumbers, um, anything for plumbers that, you know, as a plumbing consultant, Oh, that's a problem that I solve. And even if it's not a problem that I solve, that's a question that my avatar asks that can I can use to now get them into my funnel. And so they've articulated intent in a way that identifies themselves as a quote unquote av- uh, adequate avatar for your funnel. And then you can advertise there. Now, this is a pivot, which means your quality score is going to be low, but that's OK if it works because you're also not going to pay a whole lot in theory. Um, mm-hmm. And that pivot allows you to use content to get them in your funnel and then nurture them down through a logical sequence to a sale. Uh, and that's how I would start. I'd go ultra, 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 ultra niche and make sure that niche aligns perfectly with your monetization schedule and then look for indications of intent through Google search. And when you say to pivot, et cetera, is that like, I think you used the example one time I heard um, people who buy raw land also buy um, precious example. coins. Yes, sir. People who buy raw land also buy numismatic coins and precious metals which we didn't know for uh, a really long time. We ended up, I, I, another a sub-brand that we own is called GeoFlip. We do uh, real estate investing, uh, digital marketing for real estate investors specifically. And we ended up with a client that had a ton of um, land they needed to dump. And um, on a completely unrelated note, I had a client through Solutions 8, which is my primary agency, who sold um, gold bullion and numismatic coins. And because we had really well-structured avatars for both, we ended up figuring out that people that buy bullion also buy land. And so I can go market um, to people who buy raw land for bullion and I can go market people buy bullion raw land. And so if you're searching for gold bullion, I can market raw land to you. Now, again, your quality score is going to be really low because your relevance is low in the eyes of Google. But if nobody else is bidding on that phrase, at least in that way, then you are now positioning yourself to market to them in a, in a closed ecosystem, in a silo, which is a great place to be because it means there's no other noise. Okay. Is that like a selling a car after buying a house? That's exactly right. Yes, sir. Yeah. You, when, especially if you start to, there's a cadence to purchases, you know, you know that there's a certain amount of things like, I forget what the percentage is, but a certain percentage of people buy life insurance after having children. Mm. So if I know that, then the minute you start shopping for, you know, infant diapers or whatever it is, I'm going to start hitting you as my life insurance content. Um, and if you want to get really bullish you, and, and, and realize that we can take this to absurdity, but the minute you propose, I can start hitting you with my life insurance content, knowing that I'm going to nurture you for two or three years until you have the baby and decide that you actually want life insurance. And that's what marketers do. We ruin everything. Marketers are constantly traveling further and further up the funnel to where like you're born and a marketer saying, hey, when you're ready to buy a car, I can get you the best APR. 
<laughs> and I'm only kind of kidding. Like we've sort of like taken it to that depth and level of absurdity. But that's sort of what the pivot is. Wow. So essentially you're stalking us. On every level, through every step. Yeah. And Google, it's getting really scary. Google can uh, Google knows when a woman is pregnant before she does. Um, uh, they The famous target case. Yeah, that's exactly right. Man, you're really well informed, Eric. You're scary. <laughs> okay. So to wrap things up, because I don't want to scare anybody too much, what would you recommend for a business starting out with a budget? I mean, they don't have a lot of money and Google AdWords, all these campaigns, they can cost a lot of money. Mm -hmm. What is some basic grassroots or even let's call it guerrilla marketing? Sure. What is it somebody can do to just start getting the ball rolling? So there's a term called single key phrase ad group, SCAG. I'd start there. I'd go look at that one phrase that you know for a fact means somebody's going to buy from you. So for instance, for me, it's it's uh, AdWords agency. If somebody's looking for, and they don't even call it AdWords anymore, they call Google Ads, but if somebody's looking for AdWords agency, I know for a fact they're looking for me. It's different than PPC help. It's different than, you know, uh, I don't know what, learn PPC. AdWords agency means you're shopping for somebody to do it for you and you know specifically what you want to buy. Um, for you, Mr. and Mrs. Listener, regardless of who you are, um, there's that one or two or three, one or two or three key phrases that you know for a fact. We call them high commercial intent, but they're, they're, they indicate a purchasing decision. I would go launch a campaign around one phrase at a time. Don't worry about building twenty or thirty um, different key phrases. I think Google's new; they change their rules all the time. But now their recommendations are ten to twelve key phrases instead of an ad group. I wouldn't do that. I'd have your one key phrase. I'd make sure that it was exact match, and I would start marketing to that phrase. And what you're trying to do is a few things. You want to look at what competition exists. You want to look at what your cost per click ends up being. If your quality score is high, you want to look at how to raise your quality score. Um, And you want to see if people are actually converting. What I tell people is this, my job isn't to prove that marketing works. My job is to prove that your business model works inside of an organic ecosystem using already proven marketing methods. Google wouldn't be the almost trillion dollar brand it is if it didn't work. So really the question for you is, is your business going to work inside of the Google ecosystem? And if it doesn't work in the Google ecosystem, that to me is kind of a, it's the canary in the coal mines because that's, that's really where the rubber meets the road. That's like the stock exchange of, of the, the overarching digital ecosystem. So make sure you can be competitive there. And I would call that action item number one. If you can't, it doesn't mean give up and throw in the towel. It just means that you might need to work on things like margins, streamlining, scale, um, hmm. sales process, right? Like if I'm bringing you 10 leads and you're only closing one and we're not profitable, well, it might not be that I need to bring you 20 leads. It might need be that you need to learn to close two and 10 leads. Um, and those are tough conversations to have with clients, but they're conversations we have every day. So instead of, um, can you possibly go at it a diff- slightly different direction to save money or, or maybe get a little more space in it? Like, for example, I live in Hampton mm-hmm. and let's say I'm an exterminator. I imagine that exterminators in Hampton is going to be more expensive to buy for AdWords to buy that phrase. The geotargeted phrase you mean? Right. Yes. But maybe rats in my basement. Sure. So you end up in a situation there to where you're not necessarily going to get enough data for you to make an informed decision. Um, what I would want to do in this use case, what I would want to do is I'd rather see you go after Exterminator in Hampton. Um, hmm. Go dead on to the high commercial intent key phrase uh, and then start to see how well you're converting. What you might find is like your site doesn't convert. People aren't calling you. And so, you know, let's say people don't click on your ads. You're saying the wrong thing. Let's say people click on your ads and don't convert on your page. Your page is saying the wrong thing and start to slowly mm. fix that funnel down the line. And, and at that point, realize you're not paying for the lead. You're paying for the data. 
Now you might get to where you fixed your ads, you fixed your page and people are calling and you're still not closing. And now it's, you know, a sales conversation. But what that phrase allows you to do is, you know, for a fact, the phrase is quality. Because if you start bidding on things like rats in my basement, there's a whole slew of other situations that can contribute to why they did or did not close. You don't want to leave yourself with any excuses. Mm, okay. um, so exterminator Hampton, you just know, okay, this is somebody who's looking for exterminator in there in Hampton. Mm-hmm. Okay. That, so it, it's worth it. Yeah. Well, and again, it, it, we tell clients for the first 90 days, you're not paying for leads, you're paying for data. Um, we're paying to prove concept. And, you know, concept isn't always proven, but at the end of 90 days, I should at least be able to tell you how or why. Okay. Now, as a last item, is it fair to say that these things take time? Yes. I think anybody who tells you it's going to be faster than 90 days is lying to you. And then they're just trying to earn your business. I, I, again, I've been doing this for, for over a decade and not as heavy in the Google ads ecosystem, but for a damn long time. And, and it's very rare that a campaign performs before 90 days. It happens when I've been in that industry before. So I know real estate investment really now. I, I know Montessori schools really now. I know uh, masonry really well. Um, I know dentistry really well. So if I've been in the industry before, I can go in and say, okay, here's all my learning lessons and maybe I'll start performing sooner than that. But if it's a new industry, new client, new geography, um, your campaign's not going to perform before 90 days. Um, and you have to be willing to make that investment. You also need to be willing to spend into what we would consider to be critical mass. So if you're not spending enough for me to make data-driven decisions and adjustments, then you might as well not hire somebody like me. Um, so be really careful of, of AdWords consultants or anybody that, that, is willing to take any spend. If they don't give you a minimum budget, then again, they're just trying to they're just trying to earn a client. And there's so many agencies out there like that. They're just churn and burn. They know, okay, I'm going to have you for two or three months. We'll get a couple grand out of you and then we'll move on to the next person. So yeah, if they're not managing reasonable expectations, that again, that's a red flag. So get references. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. You've given us a lot to chew on here. How can people find you and uh, get more information if they want to find out more? Uh, my agency is Solutions 8. They can go to sol8.com. That's S-O-L, the number eight. And we offer free Google Ads evaluations. So we'll go through your entire Google Ad campaign as long as you're spending at least two grand a month. And it's not, you know, that line of demarcation is only there because without that spend, we're really not able to provide a whole lot of value. And we'll audit your entire campaign and let you know what uh, improvements we think can be made. Cool. And if people want to get a hold of you? My website's Kasim, K-A-S-I-M dot me, Kasim dot me. And you can see my exercise and narcissism there. (laughs) Fabulous. Well, hey, thanks a lot for coming on, man. Eric, thanks for having me. This has been a blast. I did not grow up with very much money. Money's energy. Money is something that that really scares me. You had about 60 grand in debt. Money isn't the answer. Somebody should just give me a lot of money. My dream was to be the WWE wrestler, but you realize that your dreams change over the years. Money's a tool. It's a key to a gate. And at the other side of the gate is the things that you really want to do with your life. It's the things that matter most to you. It's pursuing those values that make you ultimately happy. Listen to Inspired Money at inspiredmoney.fm. Hi, I'm Tyson Franklin, the host of It's No Secret with Dr. T, which is a small business and marketing podcast. Each week, I interview business leaders who openly share the secrets to the massive success. It's No Secret with Dr. T will educate, entertain, and inspire you. Check it out. You'll find it wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can go to my website, TysonFranklin.com.